The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
the video reminds us that this is precious truth that we've been going over these last months. It's precious to the church throughout the entire world, not just to us. And it's good news for those throughout the whole world who don't get to hear this, who maybe don't even have a Bible. So I don't know whether you are convinced and it doesn't matter or you think Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. I know it's important to you. And it ends so well as we end our sermon series on Romans 8 with these particular verses. Now, when I was a boy playing with my brothers, cousins, friends in the neighborhood, we tried to find any kind of game that would be as violent as possible. And one of them was this spontaneous game that we played that sort of had the name of King of the Hill. And what it was is just simply is, as we're just playing around, if there was a mound of dirt or some sort of man-made object that was a little bit higher than this or that, or if we were indoors and there was somebody had a bunk bed, someone would get on top of that little hill or that object or in the bunk bed and, and go like this and say, King of the Hill, which was an invitation to have somebody try to knock you down, try to take you out. So you'd be standing up there, and trying to throw people back down that try to attack you and just see how long you could stay up there. And, and many would be your opponents and much would be your opposition. And of course, if you had a little cousin or a little brother, you could throw them aside really, really easily. But if they all ganged up on you, then uh, you, know, you would eventually go down. But that was okay. It was fun. It was violent. We were boys. Now, how long can you stay up on top of that? By yourself? You can't stay up at all. But in Jesus Christ, you, you really are on top of the hill. And you will not be removed. And that's what Paul wants to end up with as he's explaining to the Roman church, this is the gospel that I believe. In verses 31 to 39, we see Coach Paul at his best pregame speech. In order to motivate every football player, sometimes the coach will say it in the locker room, defeat is not an option. Defeat is not an option. Or we cannot lose this game. Come on, fellows. Come on, girls. We cannot lose this game. But of course, that's not true. Coaches say that and then they get defeated. The team really can lose. But when Paul here says defeat is not an option, he really means it. He's literally correct. The believer cannot be defeated. And one thing that he's saying in this, this whole chapter is because the end of the game is predetermined. The outcome is already finished. And that's supposed to encourage you and encourage you to carry on and endure. Now today our sermon is going to be a little more interactive than normal sermons, all right? I'm going to ask you five times to answer back to me, all together and out loud. I'll cue you so you know when to do that and you'll know what to say. Because see, Paul asks five questions that he thinks have such obvious answers that he doesn't even answer them himself. But we will. Number one, who is against us? Two, who will bring an accusation? Three, who will condemn us? Four, who can separate us? And five, what can separate us? And we will answer out loud together either no one or nothing. Verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? He means, what are the obvious conclusions as I draw to the end of this section right here? Paul says, well, what are these things? All right, listen to this. Just a sampling. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have received reconciliation. 5.11. 
Grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, 521. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, 6-5. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, 6-23. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 8-1. And most importantly, we are, listen to this, we are foreknown by God, predestined to conformity to Christ, called, justified, glorified, Romans 8, 29 through 30. So number one, if God is for us, who's against us? The emphasis of the question is is on God. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? So what if God is the one who's for us? Doesn't that make a difference? I want people to be for me. I don't want people to be against me. It seems like the entire world feels that way to be against me. So many things seem against me. But I want all of you to be for me, even right now. I want to be for you. It's just, it's a hard road when the family or a spouse or the the job or just your own health is against you. A political candidate gets the endorsement of the president, right? You know, I, I'm the president and I am for this candidate. I'm, I'm endorsing this person right here. You should vote for them too. But the president can't cause a candidate to win. The crowd cheers for you to make the game-winning basket. That's probably a great feeling. You've got the ball. You're going down court, last-minute shot. You know the whole crowd. Your crowd is for you. you gotta, I want you to make that shot. Please make that shot. But, but we can't make the shot for you. We can't cause it to be made. Your parents are for your success on the chemistry test, but they can't take the test for you. The pastors of this church are for your salvation and your growth in Christ, but all we can do is preach and teach. I can't make you be saved. I can't make you grow. But if God is for you, guys, if God is for you, then all things are not just a possibility. They are a reality. That's the word, man. That's true. Now imagine with me for a second here. Just go with me. Imagine you have a very serious heart problem. Your heart is failing. You will soon die. Imagine that you have a cardiologist, a heart surgeon, a really, really good one. And not just that, you really, really love him or her. A really, really good doctor. You have confidence in your doctor because you know he is for you. He really wants you to be healed. He wants you to live. He speaks and acts like, I am really for you. I want to do everything I can to heal you. Can you picture that? This is a good doctor. But his genuine care and concern does not provide a healthy heart if you have to have a heart transplant. This good heart surgeon promises that it'll do everything it can to give you a new heart. So one day he says, I have indeed found a new heart. I found a heart for you. We can do this transplant. You can live. You go through the operation. You get better. But when you recover, you're so grateful to your doctor, but you want to know something about who donated that healthy heart to you. You just want to know about the donor. And then you find out that your heart surgeon gave you his healthy son's heart. No, 
he didn't die in a car accident. He just took the heart out of his healthy son and gave it to you. Unethical? Absolutely. That's horrible. That's like a horror story. You can't take a healthy person's heart out of them and give it to another. You can't take one person's life just to give life to another. That's wrong. But Romans 8.3 says, what the law could not do to save us, in that it was weak because of our flesh, God did. God did do it. By sending his own son with a human body and a human heart, sent to redeem broken, dying sinners, God did the thing that no one else can do. He's serious about this. Paul wants us to employ basic human logic here. How can we even ask if God will give us final salvation, glorification? How do we dare ask if God is powerful enough or dependable enough or motivated enough to do that? If God does not spare the most precious person in the universe, he's not going to let Jesus' death be all for nothing. He's going to complete that work. God is clearly for you. And what's the everything that God grants us in this verse? Well, I, for one, I want the devil to go away for good. I want people to stop dying. I want war and poverty and racism to come to a permanent end. I want the new heaven and earth that the Bible talks about. But I want something for myself, too. Do you know what that is? I want to be totally conformed to the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want my glorification. Not my glory, but God's glory in my perfect imaging of Jesus. That's everything. Do you guys like what you see in the mirror? I never have. When I'm a little boy, that's why if you see pictures of my hair is so messed up and there's dirt all over me, in my ears, in my nose, down my clothing, it's because I'm a kid and I'm a boy and I don't care what I look like. But when I became a teenager, I started to care about girls and I realized that they're kind of looking. So then I would look in the mirror and I realized I had to look a little bit better, but I still didn't like what I see. Uh, Marie Fitzpatrick saw me at uh, walking downtown while the children were doing trick-or-treating and she asked me, so when I say, hey, what are you dressed up? As an, and I said to her, I'm dressed up as an ugly man. And I have been for 61 years. I don't like what I look in the mirror, what I see. It's just, it's not getting, it's, it's, it's only actually gotten worse. But here's the thing. I'm going to be, be like Christ one day. And I'm looking forward to that. And God is determined to make me that. One day I'll be able to look in the mirror and see the glory of Jesus and I'm going to be satisfied. The Apostle John said, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know, John says, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. God is going to give me what I want. So here's our first question, and you're going to answer back loud and clear, no one. If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? No one. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Number two, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? The future tense of bring on accusation reminds us that Paul is mainly thinking of the end of time, of the last judgment when it really counts. Does everyone, by the way, remember that the whole human race will stand before God one day? We probably don't talk about this enough. That is going to happen. Like it or not, it's going to happen. Never mind for a moment who such an accuser would be. Forget about that for a moment. Think what accusations might be leveled against us. I can name the things that could be leveled against me. I can name the accusations. Let's see. Hey, Christian, your love for God and for sinners is lukewarm at best. True or false? Your time and money are mostly self-directed. You fear more what people think of you than what God thinks of you. You seldom listen to God and he seldom hears from you. In short, you're a hypocrite. That's the accusation, and it would be dead right. But Paul says, God is the one who justifies. Where bring an accusation is in the future tense, the phrase one who justifies is in the, is in the future tense. This, that phrase, one who justifies, is in the present tense. God is the one who justified you at conversion, and continues to justify you. He is justifying you. He is counting you as a perfectly righteous person right now. This is wonderful. God, and you know that you were a sinner before conversion, but then saved you anyway when you repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, and you know that you're still not perfect, that you still fall into sin, but God is still justifying you or declaring you righteous despite your present failures. So now you have to ask yourself, what would make God stop justifying me? What sin would cause God to say, well, I changed my mind. That sin causes me to declare you guilty. He justified you while you were in your sin. What sin could you commit that would cause him to stop doing that? It doesn't make any sense to Paul. It doesn't make any sense to me either. Can affliction or anything like that ever happen? Can, can any kind of, of, of trial in life cause him to change his mind? No. Paul answers his questions reminding us that God has dropped the charges. Make no mistake, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the one whom, have, whom we have sinned against, that is the holy, perfect God, has He's dropped all the charges. They're, they're done. The very God whom we've rebelled against and failed and disobeyed and ignored has declared that our legal status is one who has never sinned. So I can ask the second question, and you're going to say, no one. Who can bring an accusation against us? That's, that's right. But how is that possible? So Paul asks the next question. Who is the one who condemns? This one's easy. The only one who could condemn would be God. This is the foolishness of the devil in my mind because he has no authority to condemn. Strange, isn't it, that he does that with no authority? 
There's no sin against the devil. He has not been wronged, so he has no power or right to condemn. But if not the devil, maybe it's you. Maybe you condemn yourself by bringing up past sins and present failures. But you also have no authority to condemn yourself or condemn anyone else for that matter. You have neither the authority to declare yourself guilty nor the authority to exonerate yourself. You have no power to cast yourself into hell. You know that your faith was not self-generated and you know it's not dependable. Your faith itself came from God. So no, condemnation belongs to the righteous judge of the universe. But Paul says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Paul's answer to condemnation is the simple gospel. This reminds us that when enduring suffering in this world, pain and affliction and sorrow, persecution, loss, it's the gospel we go back to. When we suffer doubt, did I say the right prayer? Did I really mean it when I prayed? Did I have enough faith? We go back to the gospel. We say, Jesus died in the place of sinners. He died for my sin. But there's more. We say, God raised Jesus from the dead. His death for us is accepted by God and is finished. But there's more. We say, Jesus is alive and exalted to the highest honor and busy interceding for the very things we might be worried about. Am I good enough? Am I sincere enough? Do I have enough faith? Does God really love me? There's Jesus, knowing we're thinking those thoughts and interceding for us. So listen, when it comes to condemnation, look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. Look to the throne of God. Look to the cross, the empty tomb, and the throne of God. So our third question is this, and you'll say no one. Who is the one who condemns us? No Fourthly, Paul asks, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because you, of you we are being put to death all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes Psalm 44, just to remind the church that suffering due specifically to enemies is nothing new to the children of God. Those who would follow Jesus may have to live under the constant sentence of death. Like sheep, life for any believer who makes their faith known is really just a march to the slaughterhouse. And many times in world history, at many places even now, that's true. And many have and will die just as our Savior did. Because the road to glory is marked by suffering and death. But now Paul answers his own question in a way. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All right, so now you know how we can be called conquerors. He's done a fabulous job of explaining how we can be conquerors. If there's literally no one and no thing that can oppose us, then we're all winners. 
But how can we be more than conquerors? One thing I can see is verse 28. Not only does affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword not conquer us, it even works out for our good. Doesn't do this, but does do that. It's like that statement of bravado, whatever does not kill me makes me stronger. Well, in this case, it's true. What is more, the whole world will recognize our victory in Jesus Christ. They'll have to accept the fact that they lost. It turns out for our good. That makes us more than conquerors. The best part of verse 37 is the part you skip over. Best part of verse 37 is not that we are more than conquerors, but that it is just because of the love of God. That's why. Not his power, not his judgment, not even his righteousness. Just because he loves you. Oh, how I wish that would, which is the, which is the most common, most well-known theology in the Bible, and strangely is so poorly accepted by all of us. God really loves you. His actions are all because of his love. That's the most important part of the verse. Well, then we can ask this question, to which you will answer no one. Who is the one who can separate us? No one. Verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's such a funny thing. It's such a Paul thing, verses 38 and 39, where he just starts listing these things. They just come out of his heart through the Holy Spirit, these, these lists that help us to see what he's trying to say so hard and maybe even struggling in a human way to even understand them. He, he, he just gives this list. You have to picture, you guys, Tertius. Tertius is his secretary that is writing this out. He must be sitting at a desk. Paul standing over his shoulder, and Paul just sort of throws up all this stuff. Death, life, angels, rulers right there, and, and, and Tertius must just be writing first. Like, Paul, slow down. I, I, think you, I think they get it. Paul, I think they get it. You're trying to say everything. Everything. Not the circumstances of the story of our lives, life, or what follows life. Not the spiritual earthly powers, not even Satan himself. Search as high as you want or as low as you want. And everything in between, you won't find anything. The psalmist one time said the same thing. If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. And if the entire universe is composed of only two categories... And it is, isn't it? Creator and created things. And don't forget that you are a created thing too. None of this can separate us from the love of God. Paul must have stopped and just looked down at Tertius sitting at his writing desk and said, well, I can't think of anything else. Yep, that's the point. Paul ends with what may be the most important truth to us, for we could conceivably have God be for us and have God 
justify us and have God answer every accusation and yet somehow remain separated from him. But he's still talking. Look. Now listen to this story. I'm just making this up. It could be a great movie or novel. Don't steal it from me. I made this up. I love my wife. I chose her. I made promises to her. Now imagine this melodrama. Go with me here. My wife is unfaithful and cheats on me with another man. She commits adultery. Suppose that people tell me that for all I have done in in working and supporting my wife, they say that if she has cheated on me, I should at the very least stop supporting her. Should take her out of my will and retirement and property. But I say, no, I am for her. And she's going to get all that I ever promised her, even after I die. All that I have is still hers. And suppose my family is really, really close to me so that whatever happens to me happens to them. And so I have these brothers, and they find out my wife has cheated on me. And they're really angry about it, and they intend to kill my wife. That's how close we are. But I step in and stop them and say, you you can't harm her because I've completely forgiven her. If I have forgiven her, then you must too. And suppose that the law is so strict on adultery that adultery is a crime, that a, a person could be put in prison for adultery. But I won't allow any condemnation for my wife because I will, I will not even bring the charges up. The court system will not even know what she did. But suppose this story of total forgiveness ends this way. I forgive her, and I'll keep on forgiving her. I would give her all of her inheritance and support I ever promised. I won't let my loyal family touch her. I will never let the law know about her crime. But because of what she's done for me, against me, I am going to put her away. I'm separating from her. She's got to live in another house over there. I'll take care of her needs, but I'll never see her again. That's the fair consequence of committing the sin of adultery against me. Separation. Well, now you know why that's not going to be a movie, because that's the worst ending you've ever heard in your life. That's terrible. Such a disappointing ending. In fact, it makes my acts of forgiveness almost become nothing. Separation? But that's not how our story ends. The end of the story is total union with Christ. Paul saves the best for last. We will be with him and see him as he is. The last book of the Bible says that God will make his dwelling place with us. So here's our final question, question number five, to which you must say out loud, nothing. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? There's something more to say here. Paul once wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said this. Do you remember this? Do you guys remember this? All things are yours. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. 
the ultimate reason God is for us, the ultimate reason why charges against us will not stand, the ultimate reason death is powerless, the ultimate reason nothing will separate us from God is that we are in Christ. Believers are in Christ. The Bible says that if any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. The Bible says that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Bible says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The Bible says there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We are no more able to be separated from the love of God in Christ than Christ is able to be separated from God. You must think about that. You must accept that. You are in Christ. Christ is in God. Can the Holy Trinity ever be separated? No, then you cannot be separated from Christ. What assurance, what confidence. You all, you're walking around with keys to Zion City. Where beside the king you'll walk. You're going to be with him forevermore. Here's what we should be. Three things. Be humble. Be humble. Look, who are you guys to think that salvation, predestined or salvation at your conversion or salvation in this life, or salvation in the life to come has anything to do with your effort or sincerity or strong faith. Honestly, how dare you think that? Turning from sin and turning to Christ in faith are the conditions of salvation, not the cause of your salvation. You're saved. Do you know why you're saved? No, it's not because of repentance and faith. It's just simply true that everyone who is saved has repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved because God saved you. That's why you're saved. What do you think about that? Be humble. Let God be solely responsible for your salvation. You and I must live out the meaning of our salvation with love and good works. And if we're really saved, that will happen. Be humble, but also be realistic. You may very well suffer before you're glorified. In fact, I even know who I'm talking to. I know who I'm talking to. You already have. And let's just face it, you will. That's the path to glory. Testing and tribulation is for now. But pain and sorrow, they don't indicate a lapse in God's faithfulness or love for you. That's not what that means. When life is hard, he loves you immensely. When Paul rhetorically asked if the sword could separate him from the love of God in Christ, he knew what he was asking, and he knew what the answer was. No. How does Rome kill nasty criminals? By crucifixion. How does Rome kill citizens of Rome? With a really quick execution by decapitation. Paul will soon have his head separated from his body with a Roman sword, but he was never separated from the love of God. Be humble, be realistic, and be persuaded. Paul was persuaded that nothing could separate him from the love of God in Christ. 
This word persuaded means to be fully convinced. And here we are at the end of the sermon, and I'm imploring you to work hard to be persuaded, to live that out, to believe the gospel. Are you fully convinced of God's love for you? Young person, child, adult, are you fully convinced of God's love for you? Do you pray and communicate and rest and live a persuaded life? That that's what characterizes you is this confident peace that God loves you. And the people around you see that and they know that. Oh, dear parents, I'm imploring you, please, your children are watching. And I don't know that they know that you are persuaded. Persuasion comes through truth. Go back to the cross, the empty tomb, and the throne of God. That's the evidence that God loves you. You won't be separate. Let's pray. Here again, Father, we're hearing your word as is customary, preached poorly, but it's still the truth of your word. We ask that it would penetrate the heart of all of the believers, your children, the ones you died for here in this church, that we would believe, that we would be fully persuaded. And all of the motivations that we need in life would come from the gospel, to go tell others, to live lives of, of holiness, to live lives of love for other people, but to be confident in our prayers and our, and our thoughts, because this is the gospel, which is true. We do lift up, Lord, the ones who have wandered in here who do not know for sure that they're saved. They're listening to things, but they have never really come to know the Lord Jesus that we're talking about. They may be confused about how that happens. May they react according to the Holy Spirit to come and talk to one of us today, or maybe even during the communion. Now, Lord, as we worship you in communion, we're putting all of this together and demonstrating it in the taking of the bread and the taking of the juice. May you be glorified. I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died and rose again, who is interceding for us. I pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.